What does healing mean to you? Once we can really have some true recovery, and I mean really true, you know, where it's like you really know yourself, that can serve as a barometer for whether or not we need help much, much sooner. The Mental Health Podcast, raising unanswered questions, sharing unanswered prayers. We are faith-based, peer-led, story-driven, and stigma-breaking. I am Tony Roberts. I am Eric Riddle. And And we are Revealing Voices. Tony, it is episode 16. It's hard to believe we've come to number 16. Yes. Chris oh, Cole on the show today. It's a very, very unique interview today. You know, this is our second podcaster in about six weeks on the show. That's right. Robert Ward, now yeah. Chris Cole. And we're having Brandon Andrus in about a month. Yeah. I like it. I like promoting Podcast-topia. Yeah, a lot of good shows out there other than ours. Not quite as good as ours, but yeah. they're good shows. Right, right. They're good shows. So, Eric, tell us about your 20th year reunion in Tall City. Well, uh, so Owensboro, Kentucky. I was born in Detroit. I moved to Owensboro, Kentucky when I was about 18 months old, and I lived there until January of 1996. Mm-hmm. And so I was in the middle of my sophomore year uh, when we moved, but I have gone to the 10-year and 20-year reunions down there, and I had an amazing time. Stayed with my good friend Cyrus Atkinson, a.k.a. Cybe. <laughs> He's known by his mother. <laughs> Uh, we played some Magic the Gathering. <laughs> that was our super nerdy game back in high school. And he's like, we ought to just take these cards, take them to the reunion. Be like, we're in the moment. But there, there was a 90s theme. So I was wearing a Pearl Jam shirt, had a flannel flannel on, some baggy cargo pants. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's pretty awesome. Was there a band or just a DJ or something? Or There was a DJ. DJ. Yeah. Playing the old 90s tunes. Yeah. Nirvana. You know, they actually didn't play the grunge. It, it was yeah. a little poppier. Uh-huh. Yeah. There was a guy that wearing a Nirvana shirt, though, and we were kind of hanging yeah. out. My buddy Cy, he, he was wearing a Radiohead shirt. Radiohead, yeah. OK Computer was a really good album. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that was fun. On the way back, I stopped in Tell City, Indiana, which is actually where my, uh, my parents met and were married. Uh, it's just on the other side of the Ohio River, uh, on the Indiana side, about half an hour from Owensboro. I decided to go to the church where my grandparents attended their entire life. I walk in, and I sit down in about the spot we go to. Uh, you know, in a way, I, I grew up in the church. I think I went to even a couple Sunday schools back, back in the day. You know, I'd hang out with Pop and Pappy. That's what I call my grandparents. But anyway, I'm sitting there in the spot, you know, there's nobody else in the row, and I, I just start crying. And, and there's really nobody around me, and it, it's kind of just that kind of quiet cry, like, 
put your fingers up to your eyelid. There's a little bit of water there. Keep doing it. So I held it together for the most part. Good for you. Let your emotions. Yeah, it was awesome. Cleansing tears. Yeah, and so then I went down to the river, sat on a bench for a bit, mighty Ohio, and then went uh, to the cemetery mm -hmm. where my grandparents are buried. Mm -hmm. This is uh, Jeanette and Amos Rippey. And, and so I've been there a few times, but I can never find it, so I kind of stumble around you know, the cemetery, and then finally I see it. It's like, ah, there it is. And what do you do? You, you reflect and just stare at a stone, you know? And, and I'm walking around, and on the back, they have the names of my aunt and my mom, like proud parents of Sally mm -hmm. and Janet, you know? Mm -hmm. And I've been checking out all these headstones, and I don't think there was a single one that had any reference to their daughters like that. And mm -hmm. I don't know, it just really made me feel like that really special family bond that they encouraged. Sure. So many of our family gatherings were there in Tell City. Mm -hmm. So um, it's a really special place. Strong Rippy Riddle. Bonds. Oh yeah, the Rippy yeah. Riddle is, is strong. I, I really am impressed by Eric's uh, family connections and the special moments they share. Very heartwarming. Yeah. Tony, how are you doing? Well, you know, Eric, I'm doing mighty fine. Yeah? <laughs> uh, on, the, on the last episode, we talked a little bit about the uh, travails of internet dating. Yes. Well, we have solved that problem. Oh, yeah? Yes, we have. I am now no longer on the market. I have deleted my profile. Yeah. Because I have met a special woman named Susan. Susan. Hello, Susan. Susan. Hey, Susan. And uh, when do I get to meet Susan? When do well, I get to meet her? I don't know. She's talked about coming to Faithful Friends as an invited loved one sometime. Okay. But she's going to be traveling for the next month, so it may be a while. All right. Last night, we went to a uh, speech that I gave at a youth group. Uh, and um, she was with you. She went to okay. that. I must say, talk about you know a tear welling up in your in your eye. Well, right. I was weeping, wailing, and gnashing my teeth <laughs> <laughs> at, at this uh, speech. Um, I didn't re realize how raw my story of a suicide attempt was. Still, after ten years, yeah, and sharing it um, with these young people and trying to communicate the value of life and God's eternal love for us, uh -huh. our worth in the sight of God, um, really caused me to have an emotional reaction that was just gut-wrenching. I made it through the, the story, and then we had a time to reflect on it. Got some great questions from the youth, and then there were youth who were talking with adults afterwards. Yeah. So, What's an example of a question that was asked? One very poignant question came from a, a young woman who said, what do I do if I notice an adult who is struggling with signs of mental illness? Yeah. And I was really at a loss. I said, well, ultimately, I think you need to talk to another trusted adult. Yeah. And, you know, your youth leader, your pastor someone that can you know because you don't want to just ignore it and you don't want to take the burden on yourself mm -hmm. so i want to pivot here for a moment we have a really amazing opportunity ahead of us here with the um best practices conference at saint peter's church here in town mark tyke who was on the show 
Hey, Mark. Yeah, he invited us a couple months ago, and I just found out that we're going to actually be keynote speakers. And I was like, well, I didn't know we were signing up for that. They're going to be able to say key to the church. <laughs> it'll, it'll be fun. You know, I, he said you all can sit up there in a couple lounge chairs, just have a conversational tone. So that's going to be a really good time. Well, we better roll on. Yeah, yeah. So Chris Cole, as you may know, uh, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I like to listen to podcasts that are similar to ours, you know, just to see what uh, kind of peers we have out there. We've talked about CXMH with, um, with Robert Vore, also the Hilarious World of Depression, John Moe's show. And then there is Waking Up Bipolar with Chris Cole as the host. Uh, out of Boulder, Colorado. He's a life coach, yes. And I just want to read a little bit from his about page on colecoaching.com. That's C-O-L-E coaching.com. Chris says, I serve clients in recovery from any number of addiction, mood, or behavioral issues. I specialize in bipolar disorder and spiritual emergence. But my experience with addiction, disordered eating, body dysmorphia, psychosis, and spiritual emergency allows me to relate to a wide range of clients. Because I have been through quite a journey myself, I have no doubt about your capacity to thrive in recovery, whatever that might mean to you. I offer an experienced perspective, a holistic wellness orientation, and an encouraging relationship conducive to sustainable growth in every area of your life. He's written a book called uh, The Body of Chris, A Memoir of Obsession, Addiction, and Madness. I have not read the book yet. I look forward to reading it. Okay. All right, Tony, let's get into this podcast. Let's do it, Eric. Chris, it's, it's really good to have you on the show. I have listened to every one of your podcasts. Wow, cool. And I will say the diversity of your guests is, is very impressive. I'm so glad to hear that. That's really one of my goals, so I'm, I'm glad that you noticed yeah, man. So, sometimes it's a bit over my head, I will admit. <laughs> what parts? Well, I mean, it, it's there's a lot of non-traditional uh, treatments. You know, you've got a lot of different um, faith traditions that you're mixing in, and, and I really love to to hear the different perspectives. And, and I'm I'm really glad you're able to capture such a wide audience of guests to share their perspectives on on healing yeah that's great yeah i think part of the mission that i feel just in myself but i don't explicitly st say because i don't know how these things are going to morph and change over time but i like to give as much space as i can for people to feel empowered to make up their own minds you know and to choose their right. own healing paths and recovery paths and also treatment paths that are best for them and I really feel like exposing people to a diverse range of different thoughts on a whole host of issues can help people not cling and internalize a kind of uh, basic prescription that they have to fit into, but rather see themselves mm. as wise and capable and whole and then able to pick and choose at will. That's That yes. was my experience, at least being diagnosed as bipolar is... I felt like people were giving me this very uh, straight, narrow, condensed version of what I was going through. And part of my reluctance to accept a diagnosis at all 
was that I was having so many experiences that I thought were valid and yet outside of that particular paradigm. In your blog post that you wrote back in July called Reappropriating Bipolar, you read that on your podcast and you also published um, on Facebook. And after I listened to it, I was like, I've got to reach out to Chris. I've listened to every one of his episodes and what he's done here is really brilliant. So really that was the, the moment where I, you know, told myself I've got to, I got to talk to Chris. Awesome. So, uh, you know, you returned my message that day. I really appreciate your re responsiveness. And so I'm, I'm guessing that I'm not the only person who responded to that blog post. How has it been received? It's interesting because people love it, they hate it, and they don't know what to do with it. You know, so I get I get this whole range of responses, and I think that's a that's a good sign that I'm telling the truth of my experience and what I've seen and what I've not just what I've gone through myself, but what I also see others struggling with. And it's not always going to be the right fit for everyone, and. And I've had to really humble myself over time to not just recognize that there is no standard treatment or standard model for how people are going to identify with something like a psychiatric label or diagnosis. A couple of, of items I, I want to pull out of there because I think it, it speaks a lot to what I've really found compelling about your story. And I will preface this by saying that I have in my own life, talked about having a bipolar order instead of disorder. And I think you've actually said the same thing on your podcast. Uh -huh. and, and so the, the statement you made in that post was, I can be bipolar as a distinction from psychiatric disorder or illness. Mm. Could you uh, speak to that a little bit more? Yes, definitely. So this began when I was trying to navigate whether I was having spiritual experiences and growth-oriented experiences versus merely pathology, which could be classified as bipolar disorder and is basically a category of symptoms. If I meet enough of the symptoms for enough of a duration of time, then I qualify for the diagnosis. And, and I started to recognize that just because I was having certain symptoms didn't mean that I wasn't having insight that was valid and worth exploring. By going through that sort of painful crucible that if any of us are still living well with this diagnosis, understand, there has to be some sense of coming to terms with both the ability to love and find compassion for myself and the acceptance that I do indeed meet these symptoms because if I can't recognize that the right. symptoms are painful, then I actually can't heal. You know, it's like I have to be able to see something in order to heal. Mm -hmm. What I started to notice is like, okay, so that's what disorder is. But then yes. I started having conversations with people and I found myself feeling kind of wary or nervous or even ambivalent about whether I said I was mentally ill or that I had bipolar disorder or that I lived with severe mental illness, like some of these ways that language yeah. that we we've inherited this language and people that have experienced these things did not come up with that language. 
And that's really important to recognize. So we're taking on someone who hasn't had the experiences language. And what ends up happening is it always has a kind of pathological slant. I started to say, okay, so here I am. I, I had enough episodes to see that while I thought maybe I was healing from bipolar disorder, therefore not bipolar, I realized mm. I realized at a certain point that I'm always going to be bipolar, but the extent to which it's causing chaos in my life, the extent to which it's disorder is something different. And so I really started to just play with that as it sounds like you have. And I yes. came to the term bipolar order and then I went a little further just to say, okay, so I have this particular neurological makeup. I have a particular embodiment, if we could use that language, where my makeup neurologically is different from another person. And when I really explore and really contemplate where that began, where I felt different, all these types of things, I really couldn't pinpoint it to a diagnosis or a particular experience. I could say I had a psychotic episode at this time. I could say I had a manic episode. But as far as feeling this hypersensitivity, when I was a kid, I had a, a very strong empathetic orientation where I, I remember this is a this is a good little anecdote. I remember I would yeah. come home from school and my mom would say she she would tell stories. Every time you got in the car at carpool, you would start crying. And when I asked how your day went, and she said, hardly ever did you talk about something that happened to you. You almost always talked about something that happened to another child. And that kind of informs me like there's a level of emotionality, sensitivity, and a kind of ex the exposure of being empathic and feeling of what other people are feeling in a way that's a little, maybe it's a little harder to differentiate. You know what my mother used to tell me, what? Chris? She would say, you have a one-track mind. <laughs> <laughs> Which meant, like, I couldn't let go of something. I think that might have been her way of framing, like, you're, you're in a moment maybe a little bit too long. Like, the, the mood you're in what you're thinking about maybe a little bit too deep, maybe a little bit too analytical. You need to you need to move on. And you know, as as I've grown up, I think I've registered that as the way she was reflecting maybe her experience of me as a young person with this kind of neurological makeup that 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 can get me into a very focused place, and sometimes it might be emotional. That's been part of my own experience of um, being someone who has a bipolar uh, order about himself. Yeah, definitely. And so, and so, just to like uh, reflect that back to you, you know, I hear that there's this part that's sort of fundamental to who you are. That's not necessarily always uh, classified as an illness. It's part of your personality, or it's part. Of Part oh, of sure. Emotional I don't call that an illness at all. Yeah, and so, right. and so that's where I start to say, okay, I am bipolar, you know, in the same way that I am male or I am white, right? right? It's not the entirety of who I am, but I, I am it enough and consistently enough that I see it as a type of part of who I am. Right. And so I'm bipolar whether I'm in disorder or not. 
I'm bipolar whether I'm having symptoms or not. And so that's where I start to separate being bipolar versus suffering from bipolar disorder, which is a set of symptoms that are painful. I'm curious to know more from you about your uh, approach with a person who has behavior that is to the extreme, um, someone who has the uh, diagnosis of bipolar and yet is not like you or Eric or I able to really function in a daily capacity, but you know, someone who may be aggressive, someone who may be hallucinating. I know this is part of your story, but share a little bit more about how you talk about that. Yeah, definitely. So it lends itself to the first kind of exploration that we just did, which is just because someone is bipolar and worthy of a beautiful life in whichever way they decide to define that for themselves, you know, which can be painful too. I mean, there's plenty of people with beautiful lives who suffer tremendously trying to negotiate and navigate what it means to really be alive that don't have bipolar or are not bipolar. And the piece about the extreme states is working with extreme states is an entirely different kind of domain, which is to say, if somebody is suffering with the painful symptoms of extreme agitation and disorientation, that's not somewhere that anyone wants to be. It's a very unco- it's very uncomfortable. Right. You know, the threat is not that this is going to that I'm going to be helped because what help ends up looking like is added aggression. And it would feel like violence to anyone to be kept against their will, to be locked in rooms, to be restrained, to be given medication against their will, sometimes forcibly injected into them, which is all these things are part of my story, you know? So if you took any psychiatrist and put them through that kind of treatment, they would say that was violent. That was a violent experience. Mm -hmm. So what would you say would be the alternative in order to do less damage to you and to others? Well, it depends, you know, it depends on what the particular person is experiencing. I think People need more space, not less space, when they're in that kind of state. So if you think about the way our hospitals are constructed, they're tight quarters, they're sequestered, there's um, there's a kind of underlying sense of paranoia that's actually being imposed onto a, a patient. The paranoia is that at any moment you're going to flip out. And for someone who's very sensitive to be able to feel into a field like that, You know, the last time I was hospitalized was in 2011, and I remember they wouldn't let me go outside at all for 11 days. Wow. You know, and so what does that, what does that communicate to an already florid psyche? I don't get to leave this one room with this hallway with bedrooms. Yeah. You know, that's a kind of um, confinement that I think is inhumane. And so the alternative is not necessarily whether or not they need treatment. I think that's kind of, 
I think that starts to get into kind of wishful and fantastical thinking. The question is, how can we give them access to treatment in a way that's humane? If you were boarding your dog and you went to two different uh, boarding places, you're going on a trip and you wanted your dog to be safe, and you saw one place was just a, a bunch of rows of kennel and an open room, mm-hmm. and then the next place was a, a huge grass field and plenty of things to play with, right? Something like that. It would be a no-brainer as to what you would do for your dog. And the question is, why are we doing this to human beings? In your most difficult place, maybe in your entire life in 2011, instead of being able to spend a moment with fresh air, you're told the most healing thing for you would be to not have a breath of fresh air outside for 11 days. It's a tough argument to say that is the most healing environment to be in. I would, I would say. Yeah, and the, and then the, and then I think an argument that I'd like to make for the counter is, well, we're not really trying to heal; we're trying to suppress symptoms so they can be functional enough to get out. I still think that's a level of aggression that's too takes it too far. You know, my my conviction, and it really is a conviction, and I have great faith in it, is that people do not want to suffer with these symptoms. They don't want to suffer suffer with them when they're sitting lucid on a therapy couch, and they even don't want to suffer when they're experiencing the most extreme state. It, the problem is that treatment doesn't feel like an option to that sensitive and hypervigilant experience. Treatment doesn't feel like an option at that point because the way it's being delivered is violence and aggression. I thought this might be a good time. You make a, I think you make an excellent point of conviction there, Chris, and I appreciate you sharing your passion. Um, I want to shift gears a bit um, to talk about your coaching. I know this is a big part of who you are and what you do. Um, So I want to start with the question, who, who served as your coach growing up? Yeah, well, I think the list is very long, you know. <laughs> um, yeah. I, my coach. Well, I think you know, coach is a is a really wonderful word because it means so many things in our culture. Right. Yeah. And that's that's part of why I like to use it because when people have so many kind of traumatic experiences with clinicians, mental health professionals, et cetera, there's some people that will, that will refuse to see a clinician because of how scared they are that they'll be treated the way they were treated the last time. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. So for me, I feel like from that standpoint, being a coach in that way where I'm helping people reorient to systems and ways of thinking about themselves I think so I think immediately to my teachers as both my spiritual teachers and my academic teachers who were constantly giving me material that was not just socially informed as far as social justice but also spiritually informed and like how big can spirituality be and also how precious can it be to a single person Who is one of your um, earlier spiritual mentors Yeah well of course, I have to say mom and dad. They'll be listening. Mom and dad were. <laughs> mom and dad start. So you're going to peg me on actual people. 
We love you, yeah, mom. We love you. <laughs> I love my mom so much. She's so helpful to me. And my dad. My... She'll bake you some cookies for that. <laughs> <laughs> and my my dad too was um he was very growth oriented. He really liked a lot of these like Tony Robin type of personalities and programs. And so he really was always trying to empower me. And sometimes it was really frustrating. I was like, you know, you're not, you're not like seeing me cause you're just so busy trying to get me to think about things differently, you know? Yeah. But, at, but a lot of it, I think ended up sticking in the sense that I, I wholeheartedly believed at a very young age that I could redefine myself and my life and the way that I viewed thinking and models of thinking and understanding the world, you know? So it gave me a lot of creative license in that sense. I also want to shout out to a to my high school teacher because I'm like thinking I want to thank these institutions like Naropa University where I graduated from and certain spiritual teachers and stuff but I think my my high school teacher Mr. Fecus Mr. Bob Fecus he was a Jesuit trained academic he taught a faith and gender program and that was in the early 2000s that I took that and it was already around for a number of years so he was already really keen on the ways uh, boys have challenges coming into their manhood and and understanding who they are in the context of masculinity and faith and the various um, pressures that come along with that. He really opened me up to a big vision of what my sort of mystical relationship to my Christian faith could be and also the intersection of faith and actual embodiment, what that looks like to be in that in the world and also hold a huge vision of God and, and love and all these things. Yes. Chris, the, the, uh, the question of what does healing mean to you, I know we talked about that briefly during our, uh, our call and uh, really like your response then if we could go back there and, and talk about what does healing mean to mm. you. Yeah, well, I wish I could remember what I said on the call, but I, I think, um, you know, a word I've been using a lot lately is very simple: is congruence. And yeah, I think you used relationship. Yeah, and, and congruence to me it lends itself to relationships. Being congruent within oneself is a kind of befriending oneself or becoming in alignment with that relationship to self. And then also to be congruent is to be in alignment with the relationships in our lives, which isn't to say that they're always easy, but that they're true. A true relationship has difficulty, you know, and I think part of the overlap of mental illness, if, we, if we'd like to say that, and the difficulty of being in close relationships with people in a world that's continually more and more isolated from each other. We're like overpopulated and underconnected now. Right. What, what happens is it puts a squeeze on a lot of intimate relationships and a squeeze on loving relationships and family relationships because there's so much pressure to provide everything within that those those small amount of relationships as opposed to a bigger community but to be in alignment is to be situated in the in the love and truth of oneself so that that can be conveyed to another clearly and in love and in truth right so we're, be, we're able to be honest with ourselves and with our world to me part of my healing i think is being able to tell the truth and to drop some of the 
I guess you could even call it something like paranoia, you know, that I'm going to tell the truth and get in trouble or get locked up or not be worthy of love. Chris, could you recall a time where you've been through some of the more difficult aspects of the diagnosis and you were able to, to step back and say, wow, I, I've really experienced healing and I know it because this has happened and this could have been years ago. Right. Like I, I remember, Chris, I had been in a dark depression and I was watching Ratatouille with my kids and I just started laughing and the whole movie I was laughing and it was like, wow, something just broke. I am laughing for the first time what felt like mm-hmm. a year. I'm starting to heal. I'm starting to feel joy. So, uh, do you have a memory like that and you can reflect on what, what that meant to you? Yeah. Gosh. Well, I was thinking of something entirely different, but I think I'm still going to go there. Um, So I had this summer, this past summer, I had a dear friend pass. And I think this will illuminate what I said about healing. But I had a dear friend pass and it was, uh, he took his own life. Very, very painful for me. It was very sudden and unexpected. And I noticed. I'm sorry to hear that, Chris. Thank you so much. I noticed over the course of about three days that I was starting to, like, I was starting to have symptoms that would be like hypomanic in addition to what already felt like really extreme grief. Mm. I couldn't distinguish at first whether it was just profound grief, which can look like really wild mood issues, you know? So I couldn't tell if it was profound grief or if I actually needed help. And I just really stayed open and curious to my experience. And on the third day, I realized I need to go to the hospital to get some extra medication because I I don't want to wait for this to build into something bigger. For me, who who has been so terrified of what what that the implications of that might mean, not just for my family or my professional life, but also for my sense of self and my the safety of whether I would have to be kept for an extended period of time and all this stuff. The emerging sanity of being able to say, wow, I think I'm I think I'm going too far here and I'm out on the edge. I think in the past when I didn't have this congruence, right? Like I didn't know what it felt to truly be in alignment with myself and my world. I might have actually found that alluring, you know? Wow, I'm communing with this spirit and you know, God's giving me these blessings and I'm understanding the Dharma in a certain way and all this kind of stuff. For me to say this is too far and to go take the practical steps of staying embodied and staying in my life as it is, it's borders on miraculous. It really does, you know? And so that's, that's what I would like to give people is that once we can really have some true recovery, and I mean really true, you know, where it's like you really know yourself, that can serve as a barometer for whether or not we need help much, much sooner, much more responsive and compassionate to ourselves than waiting until we're on the brinks of a complete chaos, you know. Thank you for sharing that, Chris. That was that was really brilliant to be able to yeah, be. Yeah, that, that's great insight. That that tuned in to be able to say, 
I, I need to take some medicine now. Yeah. Uh, in the midst of all that, there, there's a lot of emotions running high. I've never had a, a close friend die the way you know you've experienced here in the past year. To be that self-aware and uh, kind to yourself, that shows a lot of maturity. And, and thank you for, for sharing that, Chris. We seem to be in a, in a culture who often wants to mask any suffering at all. You know, it's, it's the perfection of never having suffered that is a, you know, a false narrative that uh, I think we all need to overcome and admit that we are made whole through that recognition that that's a big part of life. For me, that's where humility enters in. You have to have humility to have any impact, I think, of any really spiritual significance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have a lot. We're in a time right now where there's a lot of cowardice masquerading as all kinds of accomplishment and confidence, and everything's great and lovely. And people just need to scroll their Instagram or their social media accounts to figure that out. How could it be that you're the only one suffering and everyone else has these picture perfect lives? It's, right. it's not possible. And part of being in relationship with someone who's kind of been there, and I consider myself that way as a coach, as a kind of mentor in a way, I can really help people get into right relationship with what they're looking at, what they're experiencing in their world, you know? We're so, we have a way of really buying into the facade and not getting to the heart of not just what we're dealing with in ourselves, but also what we're dealing with in our entire humanity. Chris, I'll, I'll leave with a, a final quote from your, your blog post. You say that you want to dismantle all the isms and phobias that prevent people from living and loving. I think you approach your, your interviews in that way, and I think you hold that intention in, in what you do and, and the way you can communicate. It's really important for us, and us, I mean really anyone that's working on the liberation of a particular domain of humanity, to recognize that liberation knows no bounds. It's not like I'm gonna do everything I can to help people reorient themselves to a psychiatric label and then I'm gonna turn my back to some other cause where people are being oppressed. To me, any Mm -hmm. progress in any domain is not just an inspiration, but it's also, there's an intersectionality to it. Where it's like, you know, for for example, I wouldn't be able to speak to these issues without growing up in the South and going to the MLK Center every year on a field trip, you know, and feeling like, wow, like there was a narrative that was not the black narrative, right? And there was a kind of taking that back Mm -hmm. and also mirroring a, a greater possibility to the world. I feel like all these movements are flowing and operating in ways in which are complex, intersectional, and and really collaborative. Chris Cole, I look forward to uh, maintaining a relationship and uh, continue to listen to your podcast. Uh, I, I do intend to, to read your book. I, I have not read it yet. Once I do, I'll, um, I'll give you a call. You're going to love it. I'm certain of it. <laughs> thank you so much for having me i love i just i can't yeah. think enough the great warriors that are doing this work of love and peace in the world so i, I appreciate you immensely eric i think chris was a great interview he was uh 
on the edge uh, in several topics. The one thing that I'm left with that uh, impacted me the greatest was the story he shared with his friend who had died by suicide and what an impact that made on him. Yes. Um, he mentioned how he truly searched his soul to determine what his psyche was doing to handle it and determined after that search, that soul search, that he needed to go to the hospital and get more medication, which for him was not something he took lightly. Oh, yeah. He was fearful that they might overreact. And as he mentions in something you're going to highlight, the sort of the emergency mode that the medical model can get into right. is very threatening for him. But nonetheless, he saw the need and he re responded um, responsibly. Mm -hmm. Very mature, I thought. Very self-aware in, in, in that moment, dealing with... Uh, the grief and you know it's it's really tough you know i i tell myself all the time like is this a natural re response to what's going on right now mm -hmm. would, would anyone else experiencing this have a, a likelihood of a feeling grief or mm -hmm. being this excited or being mad you know I, I that's a question i ask myself and have to pause and say well you know maybe i am being a little symptomatic right now maybe i need mm -hmm. to separate myself from a situation and, and calm down right and I think he really spoke to that very well and made a wise choice. Um, mm -hmm. this How about summer. you? What was your top takeaway? I could talk to Chris for a long time mm -hmm. about a lot of stuff. He uses language that is somewhat unfamiliar to me, and it's a bit difficult to unpack. I think, you know, off off mic, just having a conversation, I'd be able to kind of dig in a little bit more to things. I really like the way he approaches reframing language and reframing experiences. I think that he, he sees a lot of stereotypes in the way people react to people who are in symptomatic states. And he challenges us to think of um, our approaches and the way we think about mental illness to, to one that's actually much more uplifting and even in a way em embraces the symptoms as a, just a part of life. The illustration he had of when you, when you asked him about, you know, hospitals and the way they treat those in severe symptomatic states. Right. And he had the analogy of the dog kennel. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was really a picture that, you know, took me back to when I've been in the hospital. Mm -hmm. And when, when he talked about, his own experience of 11 days, mm -hmm. and I've never been in for 11 days, but 11 days and no exposure to outside and saying that this is like a dog kennel where the dogs can't even go out and, and run, you know, go for an afternoon walk or anything like that. I mean, right. And it just really makes you think, how, how can that be the best we can do as a society to help people heal when they are in a very troubled uh, mind state. Mm -hmm. Chris, you're, you're very eloquent and, and you challenge um, social norms and, and the medical model in ways that I think uh, we need to continue to uh, question. Thank you for that. Thanks, Chris. So, Tony, on our next guest, I have the question, what about Bob? What about Bob? Bob Mills. Bob is a relationship guru. He's 
knows just about everybody who's anybody in the realm of faith and mental illness, mental health. Um, he is a pioneer in this field. He has been supportive of me in getting to know people, connecting with people. Mm-hmm. He's president and executive director of Minds Renewed, yeah. which is an organization, uh, 501c3 charitable organization that will uh, seek to connect mental health ministries across the country, yeah. may, maybe the world. MindsRenewed.org. And it's mainly going to be like a, a powerhouse web resource. Mm-hmm. That's my understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a huge website. Yeah. And they've got very a lot, attractive. A lot of ambition. And I think they're just really starting to get their feet under them. Mm-hmm. I think they're just beginning to connect the dots. Yeah. Uh-huh. And this will be an ongoing effort. His his goals are expansive and wants to get everything done in a couple of years, but. His advisors are saying, you know, take a deep breath and just keep plugging away for a decade right. or so. This is a marathon and yes. not a sprint, right? Yeah. Bob, next episode. Looking forward to it. Tony, our show has come to a close. Now is the time to ask for five-star reviews. Please scroll to the bottom of our podcast homepage, click on five stars, then click on write a review. Help us reach more people seeking emotional healing and the hope of faith. Thanks again for your support of Revealing Voices. Revealing Voices is not a substitute for professional mental health care or participation in a faith community. If your unanswered questions or unanswered prayers leave you feeling desperate or unsafe, we urge you to seek further help. A partial list of outreach resources may be found on our website, revealingvoices.com. And we're definitely going to bring in parts of our podcast. Big old polar pop by the. Oh, polar pops. <laughs> if yeah. we're Kim Graves, it would be like a whole case of <laughs> polar pops. <laughs> Give me another. <laughs>